Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the nations that the Lord had left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites and those who lived on Mount Lebanon and from Mount Baal Hermon and as far as Libo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Good evening, I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word this evening. Uh, Pastor Jason Blackley is rounding up his sabbatical. He'll be back soon here within the next month. So pray that he and Dolly and the family would be getting the rest that they so desperately need and God provides. Uh, We started a new series in the book of Judges. The title of the series is Judges in Our Own Eyes. It's a play. Uh, The title is a play off of the last verse in the book of Judges. And the last verse in the book of Judges is actually repeated three times in the last two chapters. It says this, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It paints a picture of moral anarchy. It paints a picture that there is no transcendent truth. Essentially it paints a picture of exactly what the verse said. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And it's essentially the you do you movement only much, much further away. So that's the context, and that's where we're at in the book of Judges. And this evening, we are going to look at a, at a sermon. The title is Obedience, Idolatry, and the Choices Along the Way. I toyed with titling it Three Ways to Ruin Your Life, or Three Steps to Ruin Your Life, and it's essentially the same thing. And I want you to think about this in terms of some of you are young enough that you haven't made some real major life destroying decisions. Hopefully that won't come, but some of you have. Everybody here has failed in one sense or another. Everybody has done something that afterwards they regret and they're just like, why did I do that? But one thing that we all have in common, if we've experienced that kind of decision-making process, we didn't make a plan for it early on. Nobody says, I've done a lot of weddings over the year, Nobody looks at their spouse in the eyes and, and, and pledges to ruin their marriage. But it happens all the time. Nobody plans to ruin themselves financially, but it happens all the, all the time. Nobody plans to ruin their health, but it happens all the time. And, and, and what we're going to look at is the reason, the reason cultures like Israel's, families or individuals spiral into this moral anarchy where they destroy themselves. And it has to do with idolatry. There's three things we're going to see in Judges chapter 3, and you can turn there. The three things we're going to see, first of all, is the test. It's a question of what I worship. Not if I worship, but what am I going to worship? What or who? That's the test. That's the test. The second thing we're going to see in the text is the descent, how idolatry actually happens. The text that Jeff read, by the time they had been in Canaan, just a generation and a half they are now worshiping and serving other gods. So we're going to see the process 
by which that actually happens and make some applications, how it's happening today, not just outside of those who profess Christ, but within the body of Christ itself. And the third thing we're going to take a look at as the deliverance, the judge that God raised up, which is only temporary deliverance, but by way of application, we're going to take a look at how Christ is our ultimate deliverer. So if you would please turn to the book of Judges chapter 3 and pray with and for me, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the songs that we sang, Lord, uh, that it is well with our soul, or it certainly can be well with our soul because, Lord, you have done all to redeem us, to rescue us, and to be our great God and our provider. Lord, we pray that as we open up the scripture, you would speak to our hearts, you would guide us in truth. And Lord, we pray that you would make us aware of things that we can't see, things which are harmful, idols that we worship and we're not even aware of it. And Father, show your son to be the great and glorious savior that he is, that we might be wooed by him, that we might love him more, or for some even that they might place their faith in him for the first time, even this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first of all, the test here. Scripture that Jeff read. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonites and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So contextually, here's what we have happen. We have Joshua. He brings Israel across the Jordan. He spends the next number of years driving out the inhabitants, sort of, sort of. Now, here's what God commanded Israel. Canaan and all of their surrounding neighbors were under God's judgment. Think Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They're under God's judgment. But instead of fire and brimstone from heaven that wiped them out instantaneously, God's method or rod of judgment was to be the nation of Israel. That's what was supposed to happen. They were supposed to go in, drive out the nations, drive out the nations, take possession of the land. They got far enough to the point where they stopped short of driving them out and then kind of thought, you know, if we left some of them around, they can carry our water and chop our wood. So let's not drive them all the way out because it's economically advantageous for us. Brilliant plan, said no one ever. This is not going to work well. God had warned them, God had warned them, if you leave them there and they do not turn to me. Now, some of them did turn to God, Rahab being probably the greatest example, but those that didn't, if you leave them there and they do not turn to me, their gods will be a snare to you. Their gods will be a snare to you. So that's the test. That's the test. Now, by way of application or backwards from uh, context, this is what we looked at last week. What will I worship? This is the test. So now we are back the base of Sinai. Moses gives Israel the Ten Commandments. Now, the first commandment, God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall worship me alone. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. So this is the test. 
They're surrounded by Canaanites, uh, Moabites, all the ites, and all their various gods. And they're under a test of whether or not they're going to worship the one true God or they're going to worship the God of their neighbors. Now, everyone worships, everyone worships. We're all worshipers. You may or may not be a Christian, but that's not relevant. See, to worship is to ascribe ultimate worth to something. That something, if you're a follower of Christ, is Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's something else. Or you might be a follower of Jesus and you ascribe ultimate worth to something else, in which case you have multiple objects of worship. That's what Israel's faced with. That's what Israel's faced with. Now, how'd they do? So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Okay. Let's get a little historical context. So when we're talking about worship, we're talking about ascribing ultimate value to something. How, in the name of all that is good, does the people of God who crossed the Red Sea and then crossed the Jordan, how are they now ascribing to Baal ultimate worth? How do you get to that place? How do you get to that place? One small step at a time, one small step at a time. So Baal is the storm god. Baal is the storm god. Ashtoreth is a female uh, cohort of his. He's, he's the god of fertility. He's the god of fertility. So culturally, if you were talking to a Canaanite and you were to study their culture in an anthropologic, anthropological say, or way, you, you'd, you'd say, okay, what is this culture's chief value? What do they describe as ultimate worth? The number one value for them is that the land produce, that their livestock produces, that they as individuals and families produce children. Everything hinges on the production of crops, livestock, and kids. Fertility is the number one value in this culture. Hence, they worship a God that promises to make them fertile in every context. Now, the way they executed their religious practice, they would go to the the temple of Baal and they would engage in sexual prostitution, which was a sexual religious rite, in which case that their their participation with the temple prostitutes kind of jump-started the fertility process for the whole land, for all the livestock and and for their families. So as an Israelite, this is particularly abhorrent This is abhorrent. So that's their chief value. So how in the world, how in the world do those who are in Joshua's generation who abhorred idolatry, how do you get to the place where by the time we get to Judges chapter six, when God calls Gideon, one of the most famous judges, his dad's got an altar to Baal in the backyard. How do you get to that place? How do you, like, that's normalized. Well, take a look at the text. It starts this way. Joshua's generation comes in and they are neighbors with Fred and Wilma Flintstone. Now, most of you are too young to remember the Flintstones, but for those of us that are over 50, we we remember the Flintstones. So they're Canaanites and they abhor 
the, their Fred and Wilma's religion. They abhor their sexual immorality. They abhor all of their practices. So they move in next door, and at first they're shocked. They are utterly shocked by the deviance, by the, by, by the practices of these, these Canaanites. But over time, they realize that aside from the fact that they go to the temple prostitutes on a weekly basis, aside from the fact that they're just different in a lot of ways, they're similar in a lot of ways too. They love their kids. They love pebbles. They love, they love, they love their family. They love to eat. They love to have good time. They love good food, good wine. They're fun to be around. They're not terribly different from themselves with the exception of the way they worship and what they worship. Other than that, they're the same. But you have kids and you tell your kids, now, you don't play with the Flintstones kids. You have to be careful because they, they, are, they are idolaters. So you've got to be careful. Don't worship their gods. Don't worship their gods. But you grow up as a kid and you hang out with the other kids and, and you're not that different. Your mom and dad worship different gods, but things on a, on a ground level, you don't seem any different than them. Then you grow up and then you're a teenager and now the hormones start flowing and, and you have affection for your Canaanite neighbor and you fall in love. And your parents are against the marriage, but you know, kids are gonna do what they're gonna do. You're an adult now, you make your own choices until you get married. And now you worship Yahweh and your husband or your wife worships Baal. Now, what's the chief value of this Canaanite culture? Fertility. Somewhere along the line, three or four years into marriage, the crops start to fail. The livestock starts to miscarriage. You can't have a child. So your spouse who worships Baal said, we need to go to the temple and we need to make a sacrifice to Baal. And that's abhorrent to you, but you know your spouse is sincere and they're just as sincere in the worship of your God as you are of your God, their God as you are yours. And so you figure... Maybe we should hedge our bets. I'll worship God, Yahweh, and my husband will worship Baal, and maybe one or the other will provide. And then you have kids, and your kids grow up in a home where mom and dad worship two different gods, and to them, it's all the same. Six to one, half dozen the other. Baal, Yahweh, Ashtoreth, Molech. God's a God. And there you go. And that's how you get there. And that's exactly where they're at. Now, I don't know of anybody in a modern culture that worships Baal. And that sounds abstract. It sounds far away. It seems distant. But how many of you are transplants to Iowa City? You did not grow up here, right? So those of you that did not grow up here, um, this is probably harder for you that are not. If you came here as a student, it might be different. But when you came to uh, Iowa City, how many of you were, were taken aback by the number of literal idols of Herky all over the city? Does that, did that unnerve any of you? You thought, this is odd, this is bizarre. Furthermore, furthermore, these Iowa City Canaanites or Corridor Canaanites, they go to this temple that houses 70,000 people on the other side of the river every Saturday in October, September, October, November. 
and they pay exorbitant amounts of money. They paint their faces. There's all sorts of rituals. There's worship music there, and, and there's feasting there. There's the, 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 the table of herky, and, and they break bread together, and they, they drink not wine, but beer and mass quantities of it. And, and there's all sorts of worshiping going on. And to kick it all off, to celebrate it, there's blood sport. And you watch the gladiators fight to worship their God. And this is a weekly ritual. This is a weekly ritual that seems completely foreign and completely odd until you've lived in Iowa City a decade and you've raised your family here and now it's just what we all do. And we don't think it's weird at all. We don't, I'm a third generation Hawkeye idolater. My grandfather, Hollis Simpson, drove his son Gary every Saturday from Newton, Iowa to Kinnick Stadium. My father came here to school in the 1960s and played football here and was one of the gladiators that worshiped the blood sport in the middle of the arena. And then he went to the games every Saturday and occasionally would bring me. And then I came here and then I participated in that worship in a different arena, in a different sport, but the same God. Now that's not literal idolatry, or maybe it is. If you ascribe ultimate value to anything and that one thing becomes what you live for, it is what you worship. So no, it's not Baal, but you, you get the idea. You see how this works? Now that's fairly innocuous. It's just sports, right? I want you to think about this. Put your thinking caps on and think what idols, not in our culture, I'm not talking about just the people that are outside of the church. What idols has the church, followers of Jesus, unwittingly embraced unwittingly worship that the rest of the culture worships, and we're not even aware of it. That's really not a fair question because I'm asking you to identify what you're blind to. Right? It's, I, if I ask you, what idols do you blindly worship? By definition, you're like, I, if I can't see them, I can't see them. Fair? Here's a potential idol, a potential idol that is a big one. Consumerism. If somebody from the first century church time traveled to our context here in this century and they watched how American Christians do or do not spend their money, I'm going to guess, I suspect they would be as shocked as Joshua was as he watched his Canaanite neighbors worship Baal. Let me just read something from an economist in 1955. This individual doesn't, he's not a Christian, he's just making a comment about the economy, 1955. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals. That word is intentional. What did he say? We turn the buying of goods into rituals. It's a religious practice. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded. 
at an ever-accelerating rate, says Retail Analysis, Victor Lebo, 1955. Pre-World War I, advertising worked this way in the United States and in Europe. If you needed a product, a manufacturer would make said product and they would write an ad something like this. Do you drive nails? We make hammers. These hammers are excellent quality. They really drive nails really, really well. They don't break. And here's the price. It'll last for as long as you live. End of story. Economists capitalizing on the economy and, and that are all along the line here that are driving the idea of consumerism stopped writing ads in order to meet specific needs and they wrote ads to create desire. Once they started adding words to create desires, the ads became more like this. This hammer is the hammer that real men carry. When you use this hammer, the chicks will say, look at his arms. Look at how he drives those nails. You will rise in prominence above all contractors that drive nails as well. Do you see the difference? They're not selling a hammer, they're selling an image. And consequently, from that time after World War I to now, the size of homes in America have grown and grown and grown and the amount of things that we consume has grown and grown and grown and we are complete, stark, raving, mad idolaters when it comes to consumption. In every capacity. Last weekend, I attended a party where there was a concert and I went up on the deck and the host had a brand new Blackstone griddle. And I immediately began to covet. And I immediately started scrolling on my phone. How much do those cost? I must add another grill to my four grill collection. If I pushed set grill, I would have a total of four grills. It's not that I need one, but I feel I want one. I am blindly worshiping consumerism and I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. I am no different than Gideon's father who has an altar to Baal in the backyard. I can't see it. And American Christianity can't see it. That's just one, that's just one example. And I don't know that you struggle with that. I'm going to guess you probably do because you've been raised, most of you in this country, and you aren't aware of your idols. So how do you diagnose them? Idolatry self-check. This is homework for you. I'd like you to write these questions down. If you're not sure what it is that you blindly worship but you can't identify, these are some self-check questions that will help you identify possibly what that might be. The first one is, where do you place your hope? Where do you place your hope? What, do you, what, what gives your life meaning? Is it your job? Is it the accumulation of stuff? I don't know, I don't know. Another one is, what do you sacrifice for? I mean, in, in Joshua's day, or rather in, in the book of Judges, they sacrificed to Baal. They'll even sacrifice their children to Baal. What are you willing to sacrifice and for what purpose? So it works, I, I don't know. Open up your checkbook ledger. What do you spend money on? That will tell you what you're willing to sacrifice your time and money on because money is time, just quantified. 
That'll tell you where you're, that'll give you your values. It'll show you what you value most. What do you think most about? When your mind, when you're not on a specific task, where does your mind drift to? What do you dream about? What do you worry about? What do you fear losing or fear not being able to gain? And then lastly, what makes you mad? What angers you? Now, when you answer those questions, not every single one of them is an idol, but it might be. Because if you take any, any of the answer to all those questions and that thing that you identified, if that is of ultimate worth, of ultimate worth, that's what you live your life by. And all sin, all sin, you have to, you can't break commandments three through 10 without first violating commandments one and two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That sums up all the commands. The moment I love anything more than Jesus, I'm willing to sin in order to get that. Do you lie? Well, it's because you have something which is of greater value than God. Have you committed adultery? It's because sex or this relationship is of greater value to God. Do you dishonor your parents? Whatever, you just fill in the blank. It's always the same. It's because something is more important, more more valuable. That's what idolatry is. Okay, spent a lot of time on the diagnostic, but you have to understand the process. Nobody plans to ruin their lives. They just give their lives to something they value greater than God. And that's why they end up in a place where the Israelites did. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim. Boy, I butchered that pronunciation in the first service. Wasn't ready for it. It just jumped out at me. I hope I got that right. Uh, Into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim eight years. Now, I want you to notice the consequence of idolatry is pain. God gives people over to that which they worship. And that always ends in pain. It always leads to pain. God allows the enemies surrounding them to overtake them. Now, God is angered. Many people struggle with the idea of an Old Testament God that's angry. Now, remember, he refers to Israel as his betrothed bride. They are, we learned this last week, to use the language in the book of Judges, whoring after other gods. This is spiritual adultery. So God is angry that his bride has forsaken him to her own ruin. His anger is motivated by love. Anger is an attribute of God, but it's a reactionary attribute. God is not perpetually angry because people are not perpetually sinning, or at least not before the garden, and eventually they won't be. However, he is perpetually and always loving, and his anger is a product of his love. If God did not love his people, there would be no anger when they worshiped idols. There would be no anger when they're destroying themselves, but he is angry. And that's a product of his love. It's, a pro- it's not always a product of our love. In fact, it's rarely, if ever, a product of our love, but with God, it is. With God, it is. So in his love, he allows them to, to experience pain. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, stop. What causes you to cry out to the Lord? How many of you on a regular basis cry out to the Lord 
when things are prosperous and easy. When you pursue your idols and the economy is great and your sexual morality, you're loving the relationship you have with your boyfriend slash girlfriend or lover, and there's no pain, it's like you don't really think about crying out to God. But when the relationship goes south, when the economy goes south, when your crops fail, when the livestock miscarriages and everything else, everything, when the enemies come in and no longer in your Christian culture are you viewed as valuable in your culture and the culture turns on you and wants to cancel you and wants to destroy you, not physically, but in terms of your influence, now here's a little bit of pain and you cry out. And what does God do? He responds. He raises up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. This is Caleb's nephew. Caleb being the, one of the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, that went into Israel and spied out the land and came back with a good report saying, the land is awesome and we should take it. God has given it to us. But they rejected that. So God raised him up. God raised him up. Why? Because God loves his people. He wants to preserve his people. He lets them experience pain of their own making. And then when they finally cry out to them in his love, he responds. He responds. And yet the spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan, Rosharium, king of Mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rosharium. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenes, died. Now, if you look at verse 12, I won't put it up on the screen, but I'll just read it to you. Verse 12, and the people of Israel, again, did was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Edom, the king of Moab, against Israel. The whole cycle starts all over again. Different neighbor, different neighbor. The deliverance doesn't last. Why not? because their hearts never changed. They still lived in the same land. They still worship the same idols. It's just a different physical enemy is now the, their, what they think is the problem. As long as Athaniel is alive, he, he keeps the idolatry in check and he keeps the physical enemies at bay. But once he's dead, they're back to their old ways and they're worse off than they were before. And things spiral and they get worse and they, they get worse. So where does our hope reside? I, here's, here's the thing, and I talked about this last week, but I look at our Christian culture, and I'm not speaking to all of you as individuals, but I'm just looking at the evangelical culture in America. And the evangelical culture in America is convinced that the problem is those people out there, the Mesopotamians, the Moabites, the Edomites, the termites, all of the ites, with their iron chariots and their control of the media, and, and, and the rejection of moral absolutes. And those things are all problematic, by the way. But what the church and what the body of Christ fails to see is the reason the church has no influence is not because of them, but because of us. It's because of the blatant, brazen, blind idolatry of the body of Christ. The bride of Jesus is sullen and dirty and anemic because it worships the very same gods its neighbors do. And until the body of Christ 
repents in sackcloth and ashes and receives the grace of God and a new heart and is washed clean by his blood and his word, the church will have no influence on a culture that wants nothing to do with our king. So where is our hope? If we leap forward into the time of Jesus, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen to how they answer him. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? When you blindly worship your culture's idols, you can't tell that you're enslaved. Now, how does Jesus respond? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, here's a question I can ask and we'll all participate. How many of you sin from time to time? Okay, that's all of you. That's all of you. Why? Going back to what I said earlier, it's not possible to sin in any capacity, great or small, unless I have first violated the first commandment. It's just not possible. And when we have other gods, those gods shackle us and we become enslaved to them. That's why addictions are hard to break, whether they're emotional, physical, or spiritual. They're they're hard to break. We become enslaved. We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it, right? And we can't figure out why we can't do what we really want to do. It's because we're enslaved. And, and at first we're willing to drag those chains around. I don't know if you've seen the, or read the Christmas Carol or seen any one of the various interpretations, Dickens and Jacob Marley, the, the Scrooge's old, bo- old business partner comes in and he asks what the meaning of these changed were. He says, these are changed that I forged in life. And I am sentenced to drag them around for all eternity. And while we forge these chains in life, we don't feel the weight of them. We don't feel like we're enslaved to them, but eventually they get heavier and heavier. By God's mercy, he allows those chains to crush us and break us and drive us to our knees. And because he loves us, he allows us to experience the pain they cause so that unlike the Pharisees in this context, we recognize, I can't get free. And Jesus says, a slave does not remain in the house forever, yet the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And Jesus says, I came to set you free. I came to bear the penalty for your idolatry. I came to give you my spirit, to take from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. John says in his epistle, he says, it's not that we first love God, it's that God first loved us and gave himself to us. You have to understand, the only way to dethrone an idol, dethrone the affection that we have for any one thing, is to supplant it, supplant it with a greater affection for something else. That's the only way it happens. So, so how does someone, someone who is given over and enslaved to idols, they can't even really identify, learn to identify those idols and then be set free? 
by allowing the Holy Spirit to point out what they are and then you bring them to Jesus. And that's why John says in his epistle, if any of you says you're without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth of God is not in you. But if you acknowledge, if you confess your sins, if you agree with God about your idols and you come to him and you say, if you confess your sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sin, but wait, there's more to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in, in, in the next verse, in the first verse of the second chapter, John says, when you sin, not if you sin, when you sin, you have an advocate in Christ who is the propitiation of your sin, for your sin, that you might draw near to him. Here's what John is doing. He's saying, listen, yes, you're a full-blown idolater, but God loves you and he sent his son to rescue you and he sent his son to give himself for you. He even loves you so much that after he's rescued you, he recognizes you're still going to fall. And he has provided a means by which you can confess those things. He will forgive you and cleanse you. And here's what happens when you do that. When you see that he is an advocate, when you see that he is a propitiation for your sin, when you get into the practice of regularly confessing your idolatry to him, he washes you and your affection for him grows. And your affection for these other idols wanes. That's the process of sanctification. And that's how you become less blind and more self-aware. It feels like you're going backwards because you're more aware of your idols. But in reality, you're going forward because you're becoming more aware of the greatness and the majesty and the love of Christ for idolaters. And it's only then that revival comes. First for yourself, but then culturally for the body of Christ. Revival, in a sense, is just someone being refreshed by the love of God embracing holiness and pursuing righteousness. And when that happens on a corporate level, the whole culture is caught up. And then the church becomes salt and light in a dark community. And then idolaters notice and are drawn to the Christ that we worship. But as long as we worship their gods and are no different and we can't be distinguished, they don't see it. They're as blind to our Christ as we are blind to our idols. So forsake them. Turn to the living Christ. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice. We thank you that you have given us your love. We thank you that you have atoned for sin. We thank you that you have given us your righteousness and the Holy Spirit. Spirit, would you speak to hearts? Would you help us to be aware of that which uh, hinders us? And Lord, give us the ability to bring it to you. And Lord, we thank you for your free grace, unmerited, bountiful, and sufficient. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.